Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in the speech of King Benjamin, and it's broken into two chunks. So King Benjamin's address is in Mosiah 1 through 6, but this podcast is going to be covering the sections of Mosiah 1 through 3. And so Bryce, why don't you talk a little bit about what King Benjamin's trying to do in this speech? The whole point of King Benjamin's address, if you if we jump forward a little bit to chapter 4, which I know is not in this week's blog, but you've kind of got to get to the end of his speech... Um, to see the result. I, whenever I get to a speech or a presentation or a sermon in the scriptures, I always ask, what, were the, what was their goal? So I assume that King Benjamin kind of said, what is it that I want this people to do? And if you can identify that goal, what is it that his whole speech was designed to get them doing, then you can go back and see how he planned his discussion so that that it was our end result. Starting in verse... Uh, 12, he says, I say unto you that if you do this, then all the things that I would like to happen to this people will come to pass. Notice in Mosiah chapter 4, verse 12, behold, I say unto you that if you do this, now we're going to find that this, ready? If you do this, then number one, you'll always rejoice. Number two, you'll be filled with the love of God. Number three, you'll retain a remission of your sins. Number four, you'll grow in the knowledge and glory of him that created you, the knowledge of him that is just and true. Verse 13, you won't have a mind to injure one another. Notice that's the result of doing this. You'll live peaceably. You'll render to every man according to that which is due. Verse 14, I can't even tell you how many times in my life I've, I've heard Mosiah 4.14 quoted as a commandment. We're supposed to do this. We're commanded to. It's not presented that way. It's not a commandment. It's a consequence of doing what he says in verse 12 is this. If we do this, then the natural consequence will, will be that we won't suffer our children to go hungry or naked. We won't suffer them that they transgress the laws of God. They won't fight and quarrel. We'll teach them to walk. That's a consequence of doing this. So all of these things, all of these actions flow out of doing something. It seems to me that everything in his presentation is leading to this moment. I want you to do this. And the this is two parts in verse 11. Number one, remember the greatness of God. You need to remember the greatness of God. And you need to remember that you are not great. That man as he is, is nothing. Now, he's not necessarily trying to demean man as much as he's trying to say, you need to remember that God is great and that we need God's greatness. We are servants. And so you can kind of now go back to chapter 2 and 3, and that's kind of our theme, is how great is God? Remember the greatness of God. So we're actually going to get into atonement. The angel is going to teach King Benjamin some of the things that made Christ great. He's going to talk about the natural man. He's going to talk about King Benjamin saying, look, even I'm your king, but I'm no better than you because we're men and men aren't great compared to God. And so that's kind of the major theme. And if you want to put that in perspective, if you listen to our podcast on the whole book of Mosiah, you'll remember that this is coming before Noah blindness as if to say, here's the prevention. And I just want to toot that horn for a little bit. I just have found in my life 
as a father of 10 children, I just, I can't tell you how valuable it is to help children and students remember the greatness of God and their own nothingness. It prevents so many problems in our society and in our lives if we just remember the greatness of God and we're filled with humility and awe and reverence and we remember Him. It avoids so many problems. And so here it comes at the beginning of Mosiah. Uh, King Benjamin's address is really remember the greatness of God and your own nothingness. So let's go back to chapter 2. And, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on different messages, but you're going to see that almost all of them come back to that idea, the greatness of God, the nothingness of man. Therefore, what, how should we treat God and how should we treat each other? This setting here with King Benjamin speaking at the temple is more than I think most Latter-day Saints realize what's going on. The law of Moses is all throughout the Book of Mormon, connecting it to the Old Testament as well. So just as an introduction, I want Mike to talk about what is this? What, this is more than just King Benjamin's farewell speech. This is a significant thing that a king on a tower has gathered his people to transfer the kingdom to someone else. So Mike, geek out a little bit. Right. So to me, Mosiah 1 through 6 is first temple Jewish understanding of the real meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is set in Sukkot, which is the feast that would have happened about the fall period. Leviticus 23 talks about it as the seventh month, and there are some big feasts that happen in Leviticus 23. And right in the middle is the Day of the Atonement, and that's in verse 27 on the 10th day. And then shortly thereafter, in verse 34, it talks about the 15th day of the seventh month, and this is Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the setting for this, ideally everyone would come to the temple and they would dwell in booths. And these booths would be oriented towards the temple, and they would renew their covenant to Yahweh. And the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus, doesn't give us all of the details, but it gives us enough. And so surrounding this celebration, this is the context for like Jacob's sermon, and this is the context for the renewal of the king. This is also the context for the king transferring authority. And so we have all of these elements together, although the author of Mosiah 1-6 through doesn't tell us, hey, by the way, we're doing Sukkot, we're doing tabernacles. They give you all the elements of the, of the ceremony so that a reader who is you know, astute can read this and see that these elements are all put together and that that's what's happening. It'd be kind of like if I talked about a great time period when everyone got together as families and we had a big meal and the young girls got new dresses and the boys got a pink tie and they went around looking for eggs and there were baskets and there was candy in the baskets and I gave you this big long detail. Anybody who lives in maybe any Christian nation would read that or hear that story and say, well, they're obviously not talking about Thanksgiving. They're obviously not talking about Halloween. They're talking about Easter. And so in the Book of Mormon, that's what's happening here. And the, the construction of this, this speech is constructed in what's called a covenant treaty pattern. So the idea is that we have king, coronation, and covenant. We have a king transferring power, so there's going to be a coronation of a new king, and there's a covenant associated with this, and this is all couched in the idea of Sukkot. And so the total package of the speech 
is basically in six parts. There's the preamble, and then there's the history of God's relations with Israel. And that's basically the second chapter, where over and over again, King Benjamin is like, let me tell you why I'm a good king. It's not that I'm good, but I actually was doing things like paying my own bills. I worked. I served you. I didn't put you in dungeons. I didn't tax you. And then the third part of the covenant ceremony of Sukkot are the terms of the covenant. And the bulk of the terms are going to be in chapter 4 and chapter 2. Here are the terms. What's interesting is Jesus was taken out of Sukkot. If you read the Old Testament, there's not, you don't have anything like Mosiah 3 anywhere in the Old Testament. But my contention, Bryce, is that this was originally in there and that the authors of the text are saying, we're going to put Jesus back in this. It's all about Jesus. And so to me, Mosiah 1 through 6 is first temple Jewish understanding of the real meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's kind of like uh, somebody coming out and saying, okay, let me explain the symbols of Christmas and we're going to put all this back in. Like imagine if, imagine if in 2000 years people had a tree during winter time and we called it Festivus and there was no mention of Jesus, but we had a tree and we had presents, but we lost Jesus. And that's kind of my take on the Old Testament. And so Mosiah 3 is nowhere in the Old Testament and that's beautiful stuff. But the terms of the covenant are like what Bryce is saying, is God is great and we're not. He sets the terms. And so the terms of the covenant we'll talk about as we go through the podcasts on this one and the next one. And then the witnesses of the covenant is the fourth part. And that's where there's witnesses that say, okay, you've made this covenant. Now these witnesses are going to ratify it. And then finally, um, the last couple are the blessings and cursings associated with the covenant. There's blessings and cursings, and that's a lot of the bulk of Mosiah 5. Mosiah 5 and then parts of Mosiah 3. Mosiah 5, 9 through 15, and Mosiah 3, 24 through 27 are the blessings and cursings associated. And then finally, the recitation and the deposition, depositing the covenant is Mosiah 6, 1 through 3, and Mosiah 2, 8 and 9. And that's where the text... And the covenant is ratified, and it's recited, and it's written down. And so this six-part structure of King Benjamin's address is all tied into tying us back to Yahweh. And if you've ever been to the temple, the idea of a preamble, like where are we coming from? What's the history of our relationship with God? What are the terms of the covenant? The formal witnessing of the covenant? The blessings and the cursings associated with it? And the reciting it and depositing it? That kind of sounds like the temple. And what's interesting, a lot of scholars have done this, and we'll put these in the show notes. Uh, a lot of scholars have shared that this actually is really, really old. There's ancient treaty covenants with the Hittites where they're doing this with their God. And this is all over in the books of Moses. So for example, in Exodus 19, that's where God wants to make a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All six parts of the pattern are in Exodus 19. And also in Exodus 20 through 24, as well as this covenant treaty pattern in the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua 24. And so Joseph is not aware of any of these things. He, I don't even think he even knows what Sukkot is when he's 23. But that's the context behind this. Now, another layer to this, Bryce, is exactly what you're talking about, where you say, um, we need to remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of men. Well, what was Sukkot? What was it to remind them of? It was to remind them of, we wouldn't even be a nation if God didn't save us. We were slaves. We were literally nothing in the middle of Egypt, Mitzrayim, the world. We were slaves to the world, 
and God redeemed us. And so this camping experience in these booths or in these tents is a reminder of that God's our king and the fertility of the land, because every these booths would be decorated with all these symbols of fertility. Um, the fertility of the land, our very bellies would be empty if it weren't for Jesus. And so, I, Bryce, I like how the authors are putting Jesus back in the, like, Mosiah 3 is Jesus, and that's not in the Old Testament, and that's put back in there. I hope that's a little bit of a context to, like, the layers to this stuff. Yeah, so the, the Nephites are practicing the law of Moses as it should have been practiced, and as it was practiced initially, and they kind of fell away. And so it's fun to see, you know, that connection between what we, because we often read the Book of Mormon, we don't see the law of Moses in the Book of Mormon, but the law of Moses is all throughout the Book of Mormon, connecting it to the Old Testament as well. So let's jump into the actual message of King Benjamin, to the covenant he's trying to get his people to make. And so he begins by using him as a pattern. He says, look, I'm your king. And verse 10, he says, look, I don't think that I, you know, I don't, I, I didn't call you up here to think that I am more than a mortal man. I'm not. I am like unto yourselves, subject to all manner of infirmities in body and mind. And yet, if you look at the worldly perspective regarding kings and those who have and the wealthy and the people, they just think they're better. And we often think they're better. We worship them. We worship royalty. We worship stars. We worship those who have money. We worship those who have talent. And we think they're more than they are. And again, we're coming back to that idea that man is nothing, and God is the one worthy of our worship. And even the king denigrates himself in verse 26, where he's like, I'm just the dust of the earth as well. I'm no better than you. And so, by extension, what he's saying is, everyone that you think is great on this earth, all the presidents and the rulers and the, the, the important people on earth, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, they're no better than anyone else. They're human just like everyone else. So he goes on, you know, verse 12, I have spent my days in your servants, your service, because that's what we humans should do to each other. We should serve each other. Because why? Verse 7, that's how we worship God. Verse 17, I'm sorry, the great verse 17. King Benjamin has caught the idea that because we are lowly, because we are nothing, We ought to serve each other because that's how we thank God. That's how we recognize His greatness. I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom, that you, when you are in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. So if God is great and if we are nothing, then we should serve each other because that's how we love God. That's how we serve God. And there's an opposite to that. We often don't talk about the opposite. And that is if you're not in the service of your fellow beings, if you don't see yourself as a servant to other people, then you are not serving and loving and thanking God for His greatness. One of the ways we acknowledge the greatness of God and our own nothingness is by loving and serving each other. So King Benjamin begins, that's what I've been doing. So going back to verse 13, he says, I I didn't want you to be suffered in dungeons. The typical things that kings do to their people, I didn't want you to have to do, because that's not how we treat each other. He's like the symbol of fairness. That's right. From an Old Testament perspective, there was peace and prosperity in the land if there was justice. 
if there was fairness. And so and he, so, he's this epitome of fairness. Because he caught the vision that this is how humans should treat each other, because who we are really worshiping and acknowledging is, as great is God. When we start playing this game of which humans are better than which humans, then it ends up in dungeons and plunder and stealing and committing adultery. But when we catch the vision that we are nothing, all of us are nothing, and that God is great— then we treat each other. I love the end of that unprofitable servant. He says, of what have you to boast? Can you say aught of yourselves? No, you are the dust of the earth. What verse are you in there? That, I jumped to verse 24 and 25. 24. Okay. But I just, you know, it's that whole idea that I, your king, am no better than, you, than anyone else. And we need to not assume that humans are better than humans that one color is better than another color, that, that people who've gone to school for a long time are better than people who haven't gone to school for a long time. And we're not better than each other, and we need to worship God by serving each other. You know, Bryce, this reminds me of when you talked about pride, how we first notice a difference, and then because, hey, I'm different, we think that we're better. Because I have more of something. Right. It leads me to think I'm better, and then I end up persecuting you, and no one wins that game. Bryce, it kind of leads me to believe that maybe this was a problem in their society, and gee, kind of like ours today. Just like our society, because we don't esteem each other as equals. And we play this game where it's all—it's almost like we're pri- we're trying to be the God here on earth that I'm more important than anyone else. And so Benjamin's saying this, no, 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 no. We are no better than anyone else, and God is the one that's great. Therefore, we should serve each other because serving him is how we show love of God. And then he gets into this, verse 19, if I, your king, do merit any thanks... Oh, how you ought to thank your heavenly king. And then I just love verses 20 and 21. As I read this, let's make a mental list of everything that God does for us. And I know this idea is that we should thank him, but list all the reasons why we should thank him. Verse 20, I say unto you, my brethren, that if you should render all the thanks and praise which your whole soul has power to possess to that God who, ready? Number one, he created me. Number two, he keeps me. He preserves me. He has caused that I should rejoice. I really think a lot about that one. Every real joy and happiness I have in my life is because a good God, a kind, loving God has blessed me. He causes me that I should rejoice. Rejoice! He's granted that we should live in peace with one another. I say unto you that if you should serve him who has created you from the beginning and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath, that you may live and move and do according to your own will. He's granted you agency, even supporting you from one moment to another. If you could thank that God with every ounce of your soul, it wouldn't be enough. You would be unprofitable servants. He has done more for you than you could ever pay back. And then, by the way, you can't pay him back because 22 through 24... Every time, the way you pay him back is you keep his commandments. But every time you pay him back by keeping his commandments, he blesses you. So he's paid you, and you're even more indebted to him. And then verse 24, therefore, of what have you to boast? 
You are nothing, and He is great. And the more you remember that throughout your whole life, isn't that what the sacrament is all about? Remembering the greatness of God and our own nothingness. And I loved in general conference when Elder Renlin talked about the man who received his grandson's heart. Now, how do you treat your daughter whose son, his heart is now in your chest? How do you treat that sacrifice? You think about it every day. You act differently because of that sacrifice. And that's what King Benjamin's trying to say. And that's the greatness of God, the kindness of God in giving us a new heart. And you better remember the sacrifice that he went through to give us that heart. What do you have to boast? We are nothing. And if we remember that, then we honor God who is great. It's the whole sermon. It's, it's Sukkot. It's remembering how God redeemed us. I want to geek out uh, textually on Mosiah 2.17 through 2.19 because you have these series of parallels that climaxes in everything Bryce is talking about. And behold, I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn, so there's the first repetition, we're learning something, that when you're in the, here we go, service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. So there's the second parallel. Behold, you have called me your king, and if I, whom ye call your king, third parallel, do labor to serve you, so now we're doing the fourth parallel of laboring to serve, then ought not ye to labor to serve one another? And behold, if I whom you call your king, who has spent his days in your service, there's the next parallel, and yet has been in the service of God, do merit any thanks from you, there's the final parallel, oh, how you ought to thank your heavenly king. And so the climax of, of these three verses is everything Bryce is talking about. We're, we're remembering our own nothingness, and we're giving thanks to God. And that really is the whole point of this entire gathering was to remind us that the fertility of the land, the peace, and the kingship, the king even owed his allegiance to God. And so King Benjamin is going to have his son Mosiah, which is another word for savior, to be a king. He's going to be a representative of Jesus Christ. And my reading of the sermon by King Benjamin is King Benjamin is a type of Christ as well, because he's doing everything he can to establish fairness. And then he gives this beautiful sermon in three and four, Three and four, are the, it's like the heart of his sermon, and it's all about Jesus. If we remember that we're dependent on God, if we can remember that and act that way, then it just permeates like the rest of our lives. Well, we're going to get into the pride cycle all throughout the Book of Mormon. So this pride cycle, and this is where audio is difficult because I can't show you this, but imagine a circle at the very top, it's righteousness. Righteousness leads to blessings. Blessings leads to prosperity. Prosperity usually leads to pride, and pride leads to sin. So we've gone all the way around the circle from righteousness to sin because he blessed us. It's the dumbest thing in the world. We've gone from righteousness to sin because he blessed us. Well, sin leads to pain. Sin always leads to pain, and pain is supposed to lead to humility. Humility leads to repentance, which leads to righteousness. So there's the cycle. 
So righteousness leads to blessings, blessings leads to prosperity, prosperity to pride, pride to sin, sin to pain, pain to humility, humility to repentance, repentance to righteousness, and it cycles. But there's a shortcut. The shortcut through the pride cycle is if in our prosperity we remember the greatness of God and we don't get fooled into thinking that we are great. So in other words, prosperity leads to humility. Prosperity makes us more humble because we're more grateful for what God is doing in our lives. We recognize the greatness of God. Now imagine if I went from prosperity to humility, what do I miss? What do I avoid in the pride All cycle? the negative stuff. Pride, sin, and pain. I avoid pride, sin, and pain if I will remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man. It is the answer to so many things that ail us in the gospel. It was interesting, Bryce, is this sermon is in the fall. This, this uh, you know, if, it, if this is Sukkot, which I think it is, it's in the fall. It's to remind them to be grateful. And it's almost like culturally, the Lord's like, I'm not going to let you guys miss this. If you're an American, what's the big feast we have in the fall? That's right. We're going to do it every single year, and we're going to get together, and we're going to get our families together to be thankful and give thanks. But yet we, culturally, we've turned Black Friday into Black Thursday night. And you, you can just see the world trying to creep into Thanksgiving and gobble it up. Isn't there something ironic about rushing to get a TV for a discount on the day of Thanksgiving? Yep. Anyway, I just had to say that. Uh, can I just share something on uh, unprofitable servants? I love that in verse 21, where if you were to serve with your whole soul, yet you would be unprofitable servants. And I don't think Benjamin's saying this to give us a negative view of ourselves, but to give us a view of the greatness of God. And this is a verse that I really like. Sometimes members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are accused of saying things like, oh, you think you can... Uh, earn salvation or that, you know, you earn it. And I just want to just share my witness that we don't earn it. it Jesus paid the price. He earned it. Uh, but I love this because it's Isaiah. Um, I think Isaiah is so good here. And so what I'm going to read is Isaiah 64, and it's verses 6 through 8. But this is what he says. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness or all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. And But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and we are all the work of thy hand." And not to be negative towards man, but we are, and our righteous works are but filthy rags. But at the same time, that's what we have to offer. And it reminds me of a story about a cat that was down by the lake. And there were some children that were throwing the cat's kittens into the water. And they were drowning the kittens. So this man walked along and he saw that they were throwing these kittens in the water. And it upset him. And so this is from the text. It says, A little upset, the naturalist asked the boys what they were doing. 
and it turned out to be quite innocent on their part. The mistress of the great estate had an old mother cat that she loved, but didn't want any more of the cats around. Whenever the mother cat had a litter, the woman hired the boys, who were children of some of the servants, to go down to the lake and drown the kittens. And so this man is frustrated, like, why? This is so horrible. So this this man, this naturalist, it says, the naturalist talked to the boys and said he would make sure they didn't get in any trouble, but he would take care of the remaining kittens. To the scientist's surprise, the mother cat behaved as if she understood exactly what was happening. So this man is having this conversation with these kids. And he says, you know, give me the kittens. And he notices that the mother cat is understanding what's being said. And so it says, as he walked back to the cottage with the kittens, this, the mother cat ran alongside him and rubbed his leg and purred happily. And he took the kittens into his cottage and he gave them some milk and he put them in a warm box. And the next day, when all the company was gathered together in the great house to honor the scientist, suddenly the door pushed open and in came the mother cat with a large fat mouse in her mouth. And she walked up to the scientist and laid the mouse at his feet. In the words of the teller of the story, what think you of the offering and the purpose that prompted the act? A live mouse, flesh, fleshy and fat, within the cat's power of possible estimation and judgment, it was a superlative gift. To her limited understanding, no rational creature could ever feel otherwise than pleased over the present of a meaty mouse. Every sensible cat would be ravenously joyful with such an offering, being unable to appreciate a mouse for a meal were unknown to the cat. The cat didn't even have a conception of why would you not want this mouse? And then are not all of our offerings to the Lord, our tithes and our free will gifts as thoroughly unnecessary to his needs as was the mouse to the scientist? But remember that the grateful and sacrificing nature of the cat was enlarged and in a measure sanctified by her offering. Thanks be to God that he gauges the offerings and sacrifices of his children by the standard of their physical ability and honest intent rather than by the gradation of his esteem station. Verily, he is God with us. He both understands and accepts our motives and righteous desires. Our need to serve God is greater than his need for our service. I really appreciate that idea that just like the cat so grateful that the kittens were saved, bringing a mouse to this man. Uh, it's appreciated by the man, but at the same time, he has no use for it. I would but, never give my wife a big fat mouse as a thank you for something. Right. But from a cat, that was the greatest gift a cat could give. Right. And, and I and love... like our gifts to God. Yeah. He can't force us to love him. But when we finally get who he is... And we love him and we show him love. It's like a mouse. And he's just so grateful that our heart has changed. It's just beautiful. If you're looking for that, that's one of the parables of James E. Talmadge. Uh, Elder Talmadge, who wrote Jesus the Christ, was an absolute brilliant man and left us. There's several books available that you can find the parables of James E. Talmadge. It's just the parable of the cat yeah. is beautiful. So, Mike, let's jump into chapter three and just talk about the greatness of Jesus. After giving... Uh, chapter 2, at night, an angel comes and speaks to King Benjamin and teaches King Benjamin about the greatness of Christ, and then he turns around and teaches his own people. Um, starting in verse 5, 
the time cometh and is not far distance with power, that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay and shall go forth amongst men working mighty miracles such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. He will cast out devils or evil spirits which dwell in the hearts of the children of men. This is the greatness of God. And then verse 7, Lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. Meaning, Jesus was half mortal from his mother and half immortal from his father. Jesus was the product of an immortal father and a mortal mother. He was half mortal and half immortal. He says in John 10, this is why the father loves me, because I can lay down my life. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. So the pain of his atonement couldn't kill him. He could play the immortal card that he received from his father any time. The pain of Gethsemane would have ended my life. The human body is such that a certain level of pain, it just shuts down and turns off as a kind act to relieve us of pain. Only Jesus could have atoned. Only because he was the Son of God the Father could Jesus atone. Now, I think what I want to emphasize here is that means he had an off switch. But he didn't play the off switch. He didn't play the mortal side, which he, it was his right to play, because he loves us. Jesus had an off switch the whole time. And the reason he didn't push it is because of you. Because he wanted to save you. That's how great he is. He is suffering something he didn't have to pay so that we can pay a price we can't pay. And that's the greatness of God. He will suffer pain and hunger and thirst and fatigue even more than man can suffer, except it be to death. Bryce, I want to draw a little bit of a distinction, and I'm not necessarily saying you're wrong, but I just have a different take on this. Go ahead. I think that maybe he's 100% both. He's 100% immortal, 100% like God, but 100% like man. I look at this as the heart of Christology. In early Christianity, Christians really struggled with, well, what is Jesus? The Ebionites had the view of he was just born of Joseph and Mary. And the Docetists had a little bit of a different view. Um, Some of the hardcore Docetists were like, Jesus was so immortal that his feet would not have left footprints in the sand. I think in my, my reading, this is Mike Day's reading of Mosiah 3, my Christology that I'm pulling out of this, Bryce, is that he's a... Now, the math doesn't work out. But I think that maybe he's 100% both. He's 100% immortal, 100% like God, but 100% like man. But then there's this other distinction in in, uh, 3 Nephi. I think it's 3 Nephi 12.48, right? Where it's the read packaging of uh, Matthew 5.48. In Matthew 5.48, he is walking with a body that has blood in it, and he can sweat, and he gets hungry, and he says, "'Be therefore perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect.'" But then in the third Nephi narrative, he says, be therefore perfect, even as I am perfect. So I clearly don't have all the answers to all the, you know, the, the Christological arguments worked out. He is mortal. He's having a mortal experience, but he's also a God. 
however you want to do the math on this, um, the arithmetic isn't necessarily laid out, but I think here in the text, he clearly is both. And like I said earlier, Mosiah 3 is nowhere in the Old Testament. I think if Mosiah 3 were in the Old Testament, we wouldn't have some of these uh, fight infighting between Jews and Christians. I think we would have a lot more clarity. Once again, the Book of Mormon just packages this perfectly. I think the Book of Mormon also draws a distinction here as far as bleeding from every pore. You're not going to get that in the biblical narrative. Another thing that is makes us different than our Christian friends is the idea of who he suffered for, the universality of his suffering. I'm going to talk a little bit about who he suffered for. So look in the 11th verse. In verse 11 of Mosiah 3, it says, his blood is going to atone for the sins of those who have fallen by the transgression of Adam, who have died not knowing the will of God, or those that have ignorantly sinned. To me, that is so much of humanity. It's a broad stroke. We're capturing so much of the people of the earth. Bryce, I remember one time I was listening to a famous talk show host, and her name was Dr. Laura. Do you remember her? Yep. And this guy called in with a problem. He says, I'm studying to be a, a priest, and I struggle with this idea that if you don't know who Jesus is, you're going to go to hell. And Dr. Laura was, was Jewish, and she didn't have an answer for him. And I wanted to shout through the radio waves, read Mosiah 311, read Doctrine and Covenants section 138. So to me, that's a, I think that's a really awesome distinction. The Book of Mormon is clarifying something that I think a lot of our Christian friends maybe don't have a full grasp of, of you know, those that ignorantly sin. And then verse 13, those that believe that Christ should come, he's atoning for. Those that believe in his name, you the listener. And then verse 16, the little ones, the little children. Verse 19, those that yield themselves to God, that yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Um, section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, so this is not in King Benjamin's address, but he talks about, I've suffered for all, the whole world. Now there's levels, right? We have to repent to fully access the atonement, but even those that haven't uh, repented, the power of the atonement still has effect in their life. And then I really like 1 John 2 verse 2, for the sins of the whole world, he is the, the halasmos, the, the word in the King James is propitiation, which I can never pronounce, but I, the Greek is just easier. Halasmos. He, he is the one that is going to appease the demands of justice for everyone. And so I just want to bear witness of that. I'm so grateful for that. And I guess probably my favorite thing in here, I love that he's doing it for the believers, but I love verse 11 because there's just so many people that have never heard of Jesus, but he's heard of them. And I think that's beautiful. Yep. Now, unfortunately, to contrast the greatness of God, we've got to talk about the nothingness of man, but it's important to understand that contrast. So we get to verse 19. Well, King Benjamin talks about how important it is to believe on Christ and his name. But now we get to verse 19. Part of the thing we need to understand about our own nature is this natural man, that there is an animal inside of me. And that's what the law of Moses was all about, was overcoming the animal inside me, laying the animal inside me on the altar and consuming it. And I like that we call it the natural man. Paul in the New Testament calls it many things, the man of sin, uh, the old man, the flesh. Uh, Book of Mormon, we usually refer to it as the natural man. And that's an interesting term because of what comes natural. Have you ever noticed... Um, someone cuts you off on the freeway 
and you're not angry, but you should be, so you take 10 seconds to get angry. No one needs 10 seconds to get angry. If you need 10 seconds or if you need a minute to step aside, it's because anger is natural. And what you need is to go some, what's unnatural and calm yourself down. I don't want to yell at my kids, so I'm going to go calm myself down. But anger was natural. So the natural man has these natural tendencies. Lust is natural. Pride is natural. Laziness is natural. And all these things fight against God. They lead me away from God. And so King Benjamin, the angel teaches King Benjamin, the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Ghost. You have to get Jesus into you. You have to get the Savior in in order to get the natural man out. The solution is to put off the natural man, become a saint through the atonement, and become submissive to the greatness of God. The only way you're going to overcome your natural man is through the greatness of God. You've got to get Christ in. It's kind of like light and darkness. You don't turn on the darkness. No one walks out of a room and turns on the darkness. The way you control darkness is by controlling light. And even the darkest of rooms can be controlled by the smallest of light. If you want the darkness to go away, if you want these natural tendencies that lead you away from God to to go away, if you want to conquer them, the way you do it is you turn the light on. You've got to get the greatness of God into you. And as you do that, it overcomes. Remember in the Old Testament, they would take the animal and they would burn it with fire. Fire consumes the animal. Fire, Holy Ghost, presence of God, you know, light and truth, atonement. Fire makes the animal go away. And so because we are this animal, because we have this natural man inside of us, we have to yield unto the greatness of God. And again, it's that same idea of man is, or man is nothing, God is great, and until we yield and remember the greatness of God and put off that natural man. So the next time that natural man comes out, that natural tendency, which is something not pleasing to the Father, we have to yield to God and get him in our life. Fire makes the animal go away. So King Benjamin says, look, you have this natural tendency. You have this disposition. It's what makes you less than the dust of the earth. And you have to overcome it by getting the light of the gospel, the light of Christ into your life. The verse itself is even perfectly chiastic. I really do think, though, that this verse, Bryce, is central to Christianity. And it's not just us that are talking about this. There's other Christian thinkers that have really taken this. And there's a big fight right now in Christianity about who Jesus is. Like, what kind of Jesus is he? Is Jesus the Jesus that loves me and it's all good in the hood? Or is he asking something more? And sometimes I believe, Bryce, that John chapter 8 has just been adulterated. So many people have taken John 8 and twisted it into something that it isn't. And I don't want to get into the textual history of John 8, but there's some, there's some scholarship out there that says maybe that was a later edition that was an oral tradition. It doesn't really matter because we have Mosiah 3. Mosiah 3.19 answers to me the questions of John 8. 
So Ty Mansfield's talked a lot about this, and I just this quote is so powerful, where he says, there seems to be this assumed idea that because a feeling or an impulse or a desire is natural, that it must therefore be good or morally acceptable. Natural does not necessarily equate to good or desirable. The only thing that natural means is that feelings, desires, and impulses naturally manifest themselves within a given set of circumstances. Regardless of whether something shows up naturally, it may still require the exercise of inherent agency to channel, just like you're talking about, control, manage, bridle, or educate. Psychiatrist M. Scott Peck stated in his book, The Road Less Traveled, this. He said, quote, The tendency to avoid challenge is so omnipresent in human beings that it can properly be considered a characteristic of human nature. But calling it natural does not mean it is essential or beneficial or an unchangeable behavior. It is also natural to never brush our teeth. Yet we teach ourselves to do the unnatural until the unnatural becomes itself second nature. Indeed, all self-discipline might be defined as teaching ourselves to do the unnatural, especially for you, the listener, if you've ever raised teenagers. I think the natural state of a teenager is to kind of sleep in and we as parents kind of exist to stock the fridge with food. That's kind of what, and anything else outside of that is like, you're kind of in my way, mom, dad, you're kind of in my way. This is what John Taylor said. Even the natural desires and affections that we have that are essentially good are still vulnerable to all the distortions inherent to life in a fallen mortal world. And as President John Taylor taught, these things want sanctifying. He stated, we have a great many principles innate in our natures that are correct, but like everything else, they have to be sanctified. An unlawful gratification of these feelings and sympathies is wrong in the sight of God and leads to death, while a proper exercise of our functions leads to life, happiness, and exaltation in this world and in the world to come. And so it is in regard to a thousand other things. And N.T. Wright, a Bible scholar, said this. He says, We've lived too long in a world, and tragically even in a church, where the wills and affections of human beings are regarded as sacrosanct as they stand where God is required to command what we already love and to promise what we already desire. The implicit religion of many people today is to simply to discover who they really are and then try to live it out, which is, as many have discovered, a recipe for chaotic, disjointed, and dysfunctional humanness. The loss of cross and resurrection of the new creation which gives shape to all truly Christian living points in a different direction. And one of the central names for that direction is joy. The joy of relationships healed as well as enhanced. The joy of belonging to the new creation, of finding not what we already had, but what God was longing to give us. And I think that's what King Benjamin's talking about. And I think that to me, Bryce, Mosiah 319 is addressing so many ills of our common era. Let me throw a C.S. Lewis quotation. This is from Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis said, the, ordi the ordinary idea which we all have before we become Christians is this. We take as a starting point our ordinary self with its various desires and interests. We then admit that something else, call it morality or decent behavior or the good of society, has claims on this self, claims which interfere with its own desires. What we mean by being good is giving in to those claims. Some of the things that the ordinary self wanted to do turn out to be what we call wrong. Well, we shall have to give them up. Other things which the self did not want to do turn out to be what we call right. Well, we'll have to do them. But all along, we are hoping that when all the demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. 
As long as we are thinking that way, one or other of two results is likely to follow. Either we will give up trying to be good, or else we will become very unhappy indeed. For make no mistake, if we are really going to try to meet all the demands made on the natural self, it will not have enough left to live on. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self, which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, will get angrier and angrier. In the end, you will either give up trying to be good, or else you will become one of those people who, as they say, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way, always wondering why the others don't notice it more, and always making a martyr of yourself. And once you have become that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have been if you'd remained frankly selfish." Now, the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Both harder and easier than what we are trying to do. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all of your wishes and precautions to Christ but it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be, quote, good. We are all trying to let our mind and our heart go on their their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. He said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change has to go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. That is why the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes every moment you wake up in the morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings coming in out of the wind. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we're all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird, but it would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at the present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. This is the whole of Christianity. There is nothing else. It is easy to get muddled about that. It is easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services, but the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. 
If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. We have to let go of the natural man and give in to the enticings of the Spirit, change through the atonement, and become like Christ. And that's why King Benjamin gives us a new name. And we'll get into that in our next podcast. Let go of the natural man. He will only tear you down and pull you away from God. Give it up. Man is nothing. God is great. May we always remember that. This is only part one of King Benjamin's wonderful sermon. So we'll come back and we'll pick up in chapter four, which is really the covenant and what happens when we make the covenant and the name that we are given. We become children of Christ. So don't miss the next half of this and have a wonderful week.